Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Shift Podcast. I'm Alex. I'm your host, a senior behavioral science analyst at HRW Shift. And with me, I've got Dana, a research manager. I'm Dana. I'm, as you say, a research manager at HRW and have been here now for, I want to say, approaching two years. Before coming to HRW was at UCL, where I did my undergraduate degree. And it was a very interdisciplinary degree in human sciences because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know I was interested in humans in all our complexity. So I looked at neuroscience, I looked at genetics, a lot of anatomy, psychology, behavior and anthropology. So a really nice combination that looked at things from a bird's eye view and a worm's eye view. It sounds yeah. like the degree I wish I'd done. Dan and I are chatting today because she wrote a fabulous dissertation on vaccine hesitancy, which is I feel like it has always been quite topical, especially since the unfortunate publication of that one study in Lancet, which claimed to have um, to show some um, correlation or causality between, was it the MMR vaccine and mm-hmm. cases of autism? Um, of course, those findings have been disputed and disproved since, but vaccine hesitancy is always a big topic. And especially right now, as you know, I think we, when you were working on it, it was it, it was a COVID pandemic. I'm, we're probably still in it, but it was peak <laughs> of pandemic. Is this why you chose this, this dissertation? Because it was very topical a couple of years ago? Yeah, absolutely. It was very timely. I mean, I was writing this remotely um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And this was, you know, as information around vaccines and developments were kind of proliferating. At the time, during this, I guess you can call it the race to being the first nation to have developed an effective vaccine against COVID-19, during that time, there was a lot of literature emerging and with that, a lot of vaccine hesitancy during the pandemic. And you could see that in the media and you could see how it was, you know, ebbing and flowing as different news and uh, stories were emerging around vaccines and also the virus itself. It was very topical and something I was interested in because it really, I think, stood in between behavior and psychology, but also the science of vaccines. And so for me, it really married nicely with my interdisciplinary perspective. There was a lot coming out in the media around COVID-19. It was and still is a bit unpredictable, but also there seemed to be a lot out there around vaccine hesitancy. And when we had the chat, you, you called it a bit of a vaccine hesitancy pandemic alongside or in parallel with the actual physical pathogen pandemic of COVID-19. We talked about how when some of that literature was censoring fake information, because there was a lot of fake information, especially on social media, disinformation, misinformation, some outlets were censoring that fake information or questionable information, but that could have had the opposite effect and in fact make it a bit more convincing for others. You know, why are you censoring it? Are you afraid that we're going to find out about it? And this is a bit like the uh, bias that we see in behavioral science called the worldview backfire effect, where we tell someone um, information that contradicts their view, even though if that information is true, that telling them that information that contradicts their view will only make them stick even stronger with their with their view. So it will backfire when we try to teach someone something else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think it really brought to light this conversation conversation around what information is, what truth is. It's really about looking at what underpins truth. So what did you what did you look for in your uh, in your dissertation, Dana? One of the things I was really curious about was the rhetoric that was being pushed by anti-vaxxers. And I kind of hesitate on that 
term a little bit, but I was interested in the way that they were using language, the rhetorical devices, the tactics that they were using in order to express their hesitancy around vaccines and also to encourage people to to also, you know, feel the same, to also push back against vaccines. So that that's what I was interested in looking at and how science communication can perhaps borrow some of those rhetorical devices and language techniques in order to encourage and promote uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine. I, I feel you mentioned the, you know, the term anti-vaccine, whether we should use it or not. I feel a similar way because it has a lot of negative baggage, right? Negative connotations. And it set us, sets up a bit of a dichotomy where it's promotes a bit of a them versus us narrative or maybe science versus ignorance in, you know, in more extreme cases. And it gives people that identity of this is us, we don't believe in vaccines or we're hesitant and that is them brings in that social identity, the social grouping that we we are part of as humans and that we belong in. And like you said, some of those tactics focus not only on the individuals, but also on trying to teach others and bring some information and light to others and them as a group being a, you know, common front against vaccines. So perhaps we will use, yeah, vaccine hesitancy, bit of a, you know, spectrum of vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. And just to build on that as well, I think what's really problematic about setting up a dichotomy between the anti-vaxxers, so to speak, and the pro-vaxxers is that it really disregards and overlooks a much more prominent group of individuals who I would call vaccine hesitant individuals who sit in the middle of that spectrum. And I think it forces them to choose a camp. What ends up happening is a lot of those vaccine-hesitant individuals could end up falling or being nudged towards being an anti-vaxxer and being more, I would say, um, fixed in their view. And so I think that's, you know, something that's really important. You know, the the way that language can actually shape people's perceptions and behaviours is, is something really important to take into account and why I studied this in the first place. I feel like a key point here is that a lot of times we don't engage with, with vaccine hesitant people in the right way. We don't, you know, have an open chat because it's normal for people to ask questions to wonder, is a vaccine safe? How did it come into being? What effects it has and so on. Even if a scientist, we don't always know those effects and we can't predict things 100% with 100% um, accuracy. It's helpful to have those discussions, to open up those conversations. But sometimes we just throw information at people and think that it's obvious, you know, which one is the right information and what people should believe. And it's odd not to believe in a vaccine and so on and not to sign that social contract of a vaccine. But we know that information is not enough. And a lot of people who may be vaccine hesitant may know actually a lot about vaccines vaccines, how they are make and made and so on. They might even work in healthcare roles. So it can be a lot about explaining that information, setting it into context and explaining the risk that an unvaccinated person carries compared to a vaccinated person. It's really important to move away from this, what we often refer to as a deficient model. So this is the way in which, you know, sometimes people perceive scientists to have to share the knowledge with lay people so this is just with normal people like you and I who don't work necessarily in the in the industry but actually it may not necessarily be a deficiency in their knowledge so in their understanding of the virus or of the vaccine itself but rather just maybe a difference in the way that we interpret risk so I'll dig into this a little bit a little bit deeper often in science the way that we perceive risk and the way that we communicate risk is at a population 
population level. Experts will basically look at, you know, what is the risk at a population level if they don't take the vaccine versus the side effects that could come with the vaccine, but prevent them from getting a, a more severe case of COVID-19, for example. However, this doesn't always resonate with the individual. And the reason being that us as individuals, we rely a lot on our subjective experiences and on our emotions. And that's often how we interpret risk. For example, if I know somebody such as, I don't know, my sister's friend who had COVID-19 and had it really badly, then that anecdote of somebody relatively close to me who had a really bad case of COVID-19 is more likely to drive me to take the vaccine to protect against COVID-19. And this can work conversely. Equally, if I knew somebody through the grapevine who had a really bad reaction to a vaccine, that could dissuade me from taking the vaccine. And this is often what shapes our interpretation and perception of risk, which is obviously very different to the way experts speak about risk. And I think it's that discrepancy and communication that um, means that we're not always resonating with the audience. That's a very good point. I've talked to people sometimes and I said, well, I know this person who did to take the vaccine, but they still got COVID and they got it quite badly. Well, of course, the vaccine is, you know, let's say, I can't remember exactly 98% effective. That means that 98 people out of 100 will likely not die because of COVID or will have milder cases. Doesn't mean that everyone will be protected. But um, we know that, you know, we hinge onto those examples because they're easy to recall there they come to mind easily so we judge them as more probable and we think well if we know those anecdotes like you said then it's likely that those apply to the whole population um, this is a bias that we know in behavioral sciences availability heuristic and also like we said with science we perhaps it's a bit of a flaw or a necessary flaw is that we don't we can't always be sure of something with 100% accuracy so we learn a scientist to say you know this is the case in these conditions in these situations it's likely to protect 90 people out of 100 but of course with someone that doesn't necessarily understand that jargon or is not part of that group of scientists, then they might see that with mistrust. They might think, well, you know, if we can't be sure 100%, why are we taking this this vaccine? Mm -hmm. That's such a good point, actually, that I'd like to uh, speak to you because I think you're absolutely right that scientists are much more comfortable with uncertainty. It's something so innate about the work that they do that there's always going to be an element of uncertainty. You know, you cannot be 100% certain about something, particularly with what we saw in the COVID-19 pandemic and as kind of a new literature was emerging literally on a day-to-day -day basis. It was going straight from the research lab to the media outlets and therefore to lay people like us. And as lay people, we are less comfortable with uncertainty. It's not something that we are familiar with. It's not something that usually sits very well with us. And as yeah. you say, it kind of plants the seeds of mistrust which is something we'll, we'll come into in, in more detail when we speak about the research around vaccines. Yeah, you're right. We don't deal as humans in general with uncertainty. And if our daily jobs or our training doesn't put us in those situations like it does with scientists, then we don't fully understand uncertainty and we're even less comfortable with it. Tell us a little bit more about how you carried out your research I looked at some very common media outlets. So one of them was Reuters. A lot of their information is information that they then pass on to other media outlets. So that's why I chose them because they're quite influential. And also the BBC. And these were the two media outlets that I went to for a pro-vaccine perspective, so to speak. 
And then I chose two prominent anti-vaxxer or alternative medicine websites, which I can't remember off the top of my head. (laughs) But these were the two that I relied on from the perspective of those anti-vaxxers. And I'll continue to use that language, not because I agree with it, but because it's the language that was being used in the literature and therefore to kind of immerse myself a bit more in the literature as I was writing this dissertation, I chose to adopt the language that was being pushed. I basically drew up a timeline of all the key events that happened from when COVID-19 was first announced or named even, all the way to when Pfizer first came out to declare that they had succeeded in developing a vaccine that was around 90% effective. It's such historical I know. <laughs> milestones we're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, they were absolutely, you know, breakthrough moments at the time. You know, we were all sat in our homes quite literally waiting for this to happen because it was equated to A, national prestige and B, the return to normality. So there was a lot like attached to this yeah as well yeah and I remember when we thought in the first long then I thought well you know it looks like we all just need to stay home for two weeks and a half maybe three little did we know and it might be for the best that we didn't know (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and what I did with those milestones with those time points uh, on that timeline is I basically identified articles that were released at those time points so I match them up to those different milestones and then I analyze them. And what I did with the analysis, obviously, there are many, many ways to do qualitative analysis. And we have even different ways just at HRW that we conduct this. And each methodology has its pros and has its cons. I basically steered away from doing a linguistic analysis where you code everything and then you count the number of times these different words or themes were used because I was basically more interested in the style of discourse. So the way that these arguments were being made using rhetorical devices and the way that they were being communicated and presented. So I was more interested in the style of the discourse as opposed to the individual words that were being used as I felt that that could be perhaps even a bit reductive. I conducted a qualitative discourse analysis based on that and I looked at the way they were communicating their messages and also how that had an influence on the public perception. I assume you must have had a lot of findings and interesting, you know, juicy pieces of information and insights coming from their research. What are some key findings? Because my objective was to really look at, you know, what can we learn from anti-vaxxer discourse that we can maybe adopt and use in mainstream science communication to encourage uptake of the vaccine? So with that objective in mind, I think one of the findings that we're particularly interested in is the devices that anti-vaxxers were using on their websites. So they were very persuasive in their language. It was a language that really appeals to the expertise of lay people. With that, it kind of was very supporting of of our social identity. And I think that it stood in stark contrast to some of the pro-vaccine mainstream discourse because they made use of things like personal anecdotes. They took a very narrative-led approach. So these stories were very emotional and really appealed to our emotion. And because of that, it really made these stories much better remembered from a neuroscientific perspective by telling 
a story or by appealing to our emotions, you basically activate the emotional processing part of our brain called the amygdala. And when the amygdala is activated, it heightens the activity of another region of the brain, which basically helps to form these memories. In summary, the way in which they would construct these arguments in a way that was very, that would really resonate with our emotions meant that that they stuck better with the audience. We remember things better if we can um, identify with them and also this narrative approach that was used. We know that narrative bias describes the fact that we can't really deal so well with randomness. Our brains can't really deal so well with randomness. So whenever there's something random, like a new pathogen or a new strain of a pathogen and pandemic, we then immediately go for those, look for those causal relationships, we look for explanations, we look for a narrative. So something that's cause and effect, our bit of a story to it that's going to stick um, more. And just to add on that, I mean, it's, it sounds really simplistic, but even just the use of the personal pronoun and these rhetorical questions, like saying things like, you know, what would you do with an emphasis on the you? Mm-hmm. It really adds to the emotive language because it brings the audience's morals and values into question. It really makes you think, well, what would I do? What do I think? Yeah. And and again, yeah, this can be very helpful from a you know fear perspective and that uncertainty and ambiguity again, but also the fear that that creates whereby if we find a story or something that just makes a bit of extra sense to hook onto, that can be very helpful for us psychologically. Exactly. Earlier, you mentioned that science communication could learn a thing or or two from those rhetorical tactics that were used by vaccine-hesitant or anti-vax outlets. Is there anything you'd like to say around that? Yeah, one of the ways in which we can repurpose some of these rhetorical tactics is around striking the right balance between the use of statistical evidence, which is obviously extremely important to verify facts, but also to complement that with some personal anecdotes to bring that to life for lay people. And I think there's a bias that probably summarizes that better than I can. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, firstly, we know that in general and in our work as well, whenever we try to make something more appealing or whenever we try to get through to patients, for example, a bit more, we recommend to use case studies, to use testimonies alongside stats, because stats we find that are usually good for convincing experts. In general, people like, like us prefer to see a story or a personal anecdote. And I think it's also about reframing the narrative to encourage citizens uh, like you and I to commit to their social responsibility to protect those that are vulnerable in society. The same way we saw anti-vaxxers questioning people's values and morals, I think equally the same can be done but conversely, to encourage people to really commit to something that is a social contract and requires mutual trust on the note of trust. We've spoken a lot today about uncertainty and how that can be quite uncomfortable for your average person, but maybe more familiar to scientists. And I think moving away from this idea of science is objective, I think it's really important that experts almost begin to acknowledge its limitations And I know that that can be quite daunting and, you know, you may expect some backlash, but I think being quite transparent about the limitations of science and about uncertainty requires or demands trust from the public. And in return, requiring trust almost inspires trust in return. I think that's a interesting device as well. You know, one paper that we wrote was actually a white paper that we wrote in um, conjunction with Relative Insight. 
And it was on politics, prevention and pride. So the evolution of the vaccines discourse on Twitter over the COVID-19 pandemic. And some of the themes that we've spoken about today are really kind of brought to life um, in that paper and with that with that analysis. Any take home messages that you'd like the audience to leave with? No pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a couple of things. And I think they're probably very relevant, not just to vaccine hesitancy, but to discourse on social media platforms more generally. So very relevant today, I would say. And I think that takeaway message is echoing what we spoke about earlier, I think. And when people do raise doubts or do have very polarizing opinions that might be considered misinformation by a lot of people on social media platforms. I don't think the long-term solution, at least, is to censor that on social media platforms, but rather to address it, to address people's concerns, to address people's opinions on social media platforms. We can't completely overlook people's different views on topics. I think we have to address them head on. And if it is misinformation, so to speak, then I think it needs to be debunked. We need to be facilitating and opening conversations as opposed to pushing them away because that's not that's not a long-term solution. No, absolutely not. We should be inviting questions and doing our best to answer those questions. And again, admitting when sometimes there is no clear answer, but giving a reason as to why there is so, because there are good reasons, good scientific reasons. And also when we censor people, let's say there might be people who spread um, what could be construed as misinformation, then censoring them would simply help their case, right? I think it's important also because this has been an excellent case study and a very rich discussion, but it's important to acknowledge those that had lost their lives to COVID and that lost loved ones to COVID, and also to thank frontline workers who kept kept everyone going and kept everyone running from scientists racing to create a vaccine to overburdened medical care staff to people who are delivering necessities and food and everything that we needed to just be stable as a society. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really good note to end on. Thank you very much, Jana, for sharing your uh, super interesting dissertation. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is shift at hrwhealthcare.com and we're also on Twitter at hrwshift.